a choice right now, right now, between fear and love. It's just a run. Out of the dark night of ignorance and into the shining light of truth. Expounding reality. A population of citizens capable of critical thinking. We don't see things as they are, we see them as we are. There's a, a level of reality where everything dissolves into an ocean of energy. We empower our experience by insisting on our authenticity. That's very profound. Very Expanding reality. Welcome to Expanding Reality. I am your host, Brandon Thomas. On this episode, author, filmmaker, and investigator Mike Ricksecker comes by. We talk about the most amazing things. He is absolutely fascinating. Of course, all the ways to find him, Shadow Dimension, his docuseries, his YouTube, uh, all of his books, all that good stuff will be located down in the show notes. On this one, guys, we go into the Alaskan Triangle, vortices, shadow beings. Uh, we talk about ancient connection to cultures and possible time slips. I mean, this is one of the coolest conversations ever. Uh, if you know Mike's work, he's absolutely incredible. So definitely, if you don't, check out the show notes for more ways to explore his explorations, and it's fascinating, guys. You're absolutely going to love this. So before we get to that, let's talk about the resource links also located down in the show notes. We have Food Forced Abundance down there. Get your freedom from fear on. If you are wanting to start your own podcast, which I highly recommend anyone that has the itch, just do it. Start that bad boy uh, with two months free with Libsyn. That's who I host through down in the show notes as well, guys. Uh, if you are going to buy anything at all on Amazon, feed that beast through our link located down in the show notes as well. Also, check out Opus. That is the Organization for Paranormal Understanding and Support. They're here to help with all of your paranormal and time slip and abduction phenomena needs. So definitely check that out. A phenomenal community. As well, guys, uh, located down in the show notes is expandingrealitypodcast.com. Go on over there and sign up. A uh, ton of it for free. We have all of the lives are replayed there. Episodes come out early. The Too Hot for YouTube stuff. The store is located there if you want to rep any merch. Uh, as well as you could sign up to become an expansive insider if you want to support the show in that way. All of it located at expandingrealitypodcast.com. All right, guys, so let's get to this incredible conversation with the great and powerful Mike Ricksecker. All right, everybody, thank you so much for listening. We have Mike Ricksecker hanging out with this, uh, of course, author, filmmaker, investigator. You're awesome. We're going to talk all about your work and some really cool mysteries. Uh, before we launch into that, do you mind just letting my audience know who you are, sir? Yeah, absolutely. And, and Brandon, thanks so much for having me this evening. Really appreciate it. Uh, yeah. My name is Mike Ricksecker. I'm an author, researcher, filmmaker. I've been some way, shape, or form involved with the paranormal community for about 30 years. Uh, I've been on a number of the television shows, most recently here, Ancient Aliens, been uh, a number of episodes of the Alaska Triangle, and several others. So you know, my research, although I come from a paranormal background, uh, gets into a lot of esoteric-type topics. It really does. Now, um, we're finding lately uh, some evidence to suggest that they're not so unrelated. Uh, have you found similar findings? Oh, yeah, absolutely. They're definitely connected. Uh, I have a learning platform that I call the Connected Universe Portal, where I do connect all these different topics, whether it's, uh, you know, 
paranormal, cryptozoology, UFOs. Uh, you know, I have a, a lot of research research in the realm of shadow people, shadow entities. And you find that a lot of these type of experiences are also very related to extraterrestrial experiences. So yes, definitely very interrelated. Absolutely. Could not agree more. Again, a uh, big fan of your work, sir. So uh, well, what got you, I guess, interested in these esoteric topics to begin with? Yeah, it really started for me uh, back when I was about eight years old. I'm, I'm an experiencer. Woke up in the middle of the night, and there was this tall, dark, shadowy uh, form standing in the corner of my bedroom. Now, as a paranormal investigator, this is something that we would usually call a shadow person. Of course, at eight years old, I had no idea that that's what you would call this sort of thing. You know, there was just, I, I thought there was an intruder in the room, uh, you know, about to kill me, that sort of thing. So we had broken into the house is what I thought. I figured I had enough, enough time to gasp, like, huh, and then that's it. I was going to be a goner. Uh, fortunately, I'm still alive to tell the tale, which is great. Uh, it did get physically interactive with me. So it approached my bed. I'm trying to scream. My mouth opens up. Nothing comes out because I'm just too terrified. It leans over my bed, and I'm staring up into this blank black face. There's nothing there. No eyes, no nose, no mouth, nothing. And suddenly it grabs me by the wrists crosses my arms across my body, and then runs off down the hall, of all places, into a closet. So I found my voice, found my legs, ran off screaming to my parents' bedroom. And they're trying to calm me down, console me, trying to tell me that I just had a bad dream. But I had been awake for this entire experience. So this was my first significant paranormal type of, uh, of, of experience. Had some others uh, growing up. The thing that really kind of catapulted me down the... Uh, into researching you know, more esoteric topics was uh, 1993 when the uh, when the documentary came out with Charlton Heston on the uh, research by uh, Robert, Robert Shock and John Anthony West on the uh, the Sphinx and the dating of the Sphinx. I was absolutely fascinated by that. If you remember at that time, uh, the movie Stargate had just come out too. So you had those things kind of piggybacking off of each other. So you have a guy here, all these, you know, paranormal experiences, that sort of information starts to uh, be released in the early 90s, and it just really took off from there. And awesome. Uh, Stargate, great poll, by the way. Awesome movie. I think very underrated. Uh, well, and you had a chance to kind of visit someplace that may have had a Stargate as well. Of course, um, uh, Elephantine Island, which I'd love to talk to you about, actually. That's kind of a side thing I just wanted to mention. Um, sure. So uh, now let, let's talk about your work. So what led you to investigate the Alaskan Triangle? Yeah, so I was actually stationed in Alaska for three years while I was a member of the United States Air Force, 1992, 1995. Um, so while I was up there as a young airman, I wasn't really specifically investigating strange things in Alaska. I was, experienced a few things. Um, I was more just kind of like starting life, started a family, all that sort of thing up there. So it was later on kind of looking back like, wait a minute, there are things that happen to me up there. And you know, people talked a little bit about the Alaska Triangle. I was approached by the producers of the television show uh, because of my work on exploring portal phenomenon and uh, you know vortices, that sort of thing. And when we got to talking, they hadn't told me anything about you know the Alaska Triangle television show. They just wanted to know about my uh, my background on, on portals, vortices, that sort of thing, ley lines. And as we got to talking a little bit. They asked me, well, what do you know about Alaska? Like, well, I was stationed up there for three years. Strange things happen. People talk about the Alaska Triangle. Boom, immediately, uh, they're like, 
yeah, we want you for the show. And that really inspired me to dive more into the strange phenomena that happens up in Alaska, having experienced some myself. It was a great way to go back to those younger days that I experienced up there. And uh, it, it just became a whole you know, fascinating topic to explore. That is so cool. What is the one thing that you just can't wrap your mind around about the Alaskan Triangle? You know, the the energy that's up there. Uh, it is people, because, I think because it's so far out of the way. You know, it's Alaska, it's Great White North. It's not connected to the rest of the United States. People kind of forget about it, uh, but it is really just this fascinating cocktail of energy. We talk about uh, you know, triangle areas having that vortex energy that's welling up for the ground. And you know, the U.S. Department of the Interior did uh, you know, several surveys during the 1960s that said, yes, we have these different various characteristics of electromagnetism up here, some that would classify as negative anomalies. Okay, great. But there's also volcanic activity up there, uh, significant earthquakes that happen up there. You have the Aurora Borealis, which is you know, basically solar flares pelting uh, our atmosphere and it's our magnetic shield up there is thinner. So more of that energy is able to get through the ionosphere and into the world up there. So you have all of these different energies mixing together up there that cause a lot of this activity and just, I don't think people realize how massive, not just the size of Alaska is, but the energy that's there as well. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So I, I want to continue on this, Bain, but before we do, uh, what are your thoughts on HARP, also located <laughs> in Alaska? HARP. Um, yeah, interesting, because I was actually uh, in Alaska when that went online, 1993. And so, sure, there are a lot of rumors about, okay, what in the world are they doing in Gakona? You know, it was this huge complex and, you know, they came out and admitted that, yes, we were actually able to you know, create an artificial aurora, which, you know, that people were already concerned about what was going on with HARP. And they actually admitted, yes, we're doing things up there. Um, the, the military's pulled out of that and they've uh, given it back to the university. But, you know, again, I think that's a bit of deception. Of course, a lot of people talk about, you know, could it be used for um, you know, mind control, weather control, that sort of thing. And, you know, I believe some of those things certainly have validity to them. The thing that's scary to me about it is not HARP as it exists today. We're talking, you know, technology that's 30 years old now. But where has technology gone over 30 years? You know, we look back 30 years ago, we see these huge, massive mainframe computers. You know, we didn't have little tiny cell phones and things like that these days, like we do these days. So over 30 years of time, imagine uh, miniaturizing HARP or people... You know, driving around in a van that is, you know, harp technology that, you know, able to do some of these different things that they've been accused of. That's kind of scary to think about. Damn, like a miniature harp, like a liar technology. They probably changed the acronym. Yeah, something mobile. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Some little mobile. Um, well, that's that's incredible, man. Okay, so Alaskan Triangle. Tell us about it. Tell us why it's significant. What about it just drives people nuts? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know. Given the name, Alaska Triangle, yes, just like the Bermuda Triangle, but in Alaska, uh, there's several of these different types of triangle areas around the world, uh, and Alaska happens to be one of them. We kind of already discussed the, you know, the type of energy that's there, uh, you know, the vortex energy welling up from the ground, mixing with all these other things, the telluric currents running through the earth, you know, the earth's energy grid. And that spawns off a lot of different activity, whether it's, you know, paranormal in nature or, you know, 
that type of energy interferes with navigation and guidance systems, you know, planes and boats and things like this go off course. Uh, there's a lot of different, there's a lot of different uh, disappearances up there. You know, 16,000 people since 1998, which is rather significant for really anywhere in the country. But Alaska has such a sparse population that the percentage is even more significant. And yeah, some of those people got lost in the woods or were kidnapped, that sort of thing, you know, things you can kind of explain away, but others, not so much. You know, you have in the middle of a very public race back in 2011, you know, guys running up the mountain, uh, Michael Lemaitre, and just disappears out of nowhere. He's in the middle of a marathon and poof, he's gone. You know, how do you explain that? They, they were searching for him, no body, nothing. You have planes that go missing all the time. Rather, you know, uh, high profile one, uh, Hale Boggs, uh, Nick Begich back in 1972. Now, Hale Boggs was uh, the House Majority Leader. So you had thousands of people up there looking for this plane that had gone missing. They had spy planes uh, that were put into service. Nothing has ever been found in nearly 50 years time. Uh, it, so you have bizarre things like this that happen up there. Of course, all the cryptid sightings and things like that as well. It's so wild. And you hear it like in other triangle areas, because like you said, they're all over. There are a bunch of these, like the Dragon's Triangle over near Japan. And of course, the Bermuda Triangle, very famous. But you hear these t- stories of uh, time slips and uh, pilots flying and reporting, flying into a cloud. And then 30 minutes later, they're somewhere they wouldn't would have taken them six hours or three hours to get to. The other one, the real famous case of the, I want to say it was World War II squadron that was flying. And this was even an homage was made to this in Close Encounters when they found it all landed on the desert and there's kind of a nod to this story uh these these kind of things occur in these strange areas so what do you think happens or you know and you don't have to plant your flag i, don't, I know we all know yes. we don't really know what's going on but like what lights you right. up about it man and feel free to speculate wildly yeah absolutely uh, yeah you're referring to flight 19 uh which was the bermuda triangle in 1940 december 1945 yeah you know, they were just on a training mission the 19th run of that mission which is why it's called flight flight 19 and the first leg of it was fine as they turned north all of a sudden compasses start going crazy as they're trying to figure that out storms kick up out of nowhere uh guys were seeing visions and and, you know uh, like they're looking down the ground they're like is that the florida keys down there they're like nowhere near the florida keys you know and then they just suddenly go missing and even one of the search and rescue planes that took off disappeared uh what a nearby freighter thought they saw a ball of fire drop out of the sky but they never found that plane so yeah bizarre things that that happen especially bermuda triangle and yeah i think there's certainly validity to it i think that electromagnetism you know really interferes with a lot of different things obviously compass navigation um you know when it comes to the alaska triangle uh, there's a horrific story they call it the Alaskan Titanic, where, uh, you know, for whatever reason, this extremely seasoned captain who had run this course, you know, countless number of times, you know, it's going through a narrow uh, channel up there in Alaska. We say it's narrow, it's six miles wide, but right down the middle of it is this reef. So he knows to stay to to the side of it, but for some reason, he navigates right on top of the reef, and everybody ended up perishing. Why did these things happen? You mentioned the Dragon Triangle. You know, this is an area in which, you know, for thousands of years has had legends associated with it all the way back to ancient China. There were legends and fables of the dragons underneath the water that would cause this wreckage of the ships. Well, 
fast forward, even even Kublai Khan in the in the 13th century, grandson of Genghis Khan, you know, he sent twice fleets out into these waters to invade Japan. Both of them met with these terrible typhoons that sunk all the ships, uh, which is crazy twice. And uh, in the 1940s, 1950s, again, out in these waters, uh, there were fishing boats going missing, uh, military ships, these sorts of things. So the Japanese government said, you know, we're going to launch an investigation into these waters. They put together an investigative team, put them on a boat, nine scientists, 22 other crew members, sent them out there, never heard from them again. All they saw was debris and wreckage come back. Yeah, so they said, yeah, the, these waters are, are deemed dangerous. Don't go here. So uh, it's bizarre. Yeah, and I know that uh, they try and write it off as like uh, bubbles, you know, that come up and sink and, you know, reduce the buoyancy and, or mess with the buoyancy and then um, sink ships and stuff like that. And then those same bubbles are made of toxic gas that then screw with the plane somehow. But then time slips don't really explain that because they were physically f- further than they should have been. Like mathematically, it doesn't make sense. Right. Yeah. Like Bruce Gernon, uh, he he has the famous case there, the Bermuda Triangle uh, back in the 70s, where he ended up flying through what he called an electronic fog. But basically, it circled up like a tunnel. He flew through it. And within like three minutes, he had gone 100 miles. And suddenly the city of Miami is below him, which is bizarre. Um, you know, in the Alaska Triangle, we have the case of um, well, several cases of missing planes, but one of the more famous ones, 1950, is the Douglas Skymaster. And you know, it's a fine day. It's in January. It's a little colder, but um, you know, there no storms, nothing like that. They had just crossed over Alaska into Canada, had gotten near Snag in Yukon Territory, and poof, suddenly goes missing. Uh, never heard from again. You know, massive. You know, search and rescues put together, you know, both Alaskan and, and American military, uh, and, and they never found anything, you know, no wreckage, nothing. You know, what's crazy about this is a couple of weeks later, there was a smaller plane that went down in, you know, around the same area that the Douglas Skymaster had gone missing. They found that like nothing right away, smaller plane, but this huge Skymaster with 44 crew aboard, nothing. So people speculate, okay, you know, what happened to it? We have ideas of, did it pass through some sort of portal? Well, my question then became when doing this research, okay, let's say it did pass through a portal. What then? Where did it go? And you're talking about time slips. So, okay, let's say it went back in time through this portal. I mean, it could go forward in time too, but let's say it went backwards in time. You know, we'll throw a number out there, 500 years. Okay, well, who's around 500 years ago that would have witnessed this airplane? Well, you would have had the native Alaskans up there. And what are they going to think of an airplane suddenly thundering through the air? You know, it's this very large thing. Yeah, it, to them, it's going to look like a bird. They have no other context of what an airplane would be. So to them, it's going to be a giant bird that's very, very loud. Uh, and so you have these legends of the Thunderbird. So are some of these Thunderbird legends and sightings from centuries ago actually modern airplanes that had passed through a portal and, and had gone backwards in time? I think it's possible. Oh my God, Mike, I love this. this. And this is so much fun because then, oh my God. Okay. So now let's, let's think about it this way. Uh, what if, what if this did happen? Okay. And uh, of course it's just like, then it would be considered a natural phenomena that we just happened upon, you know, um, like, like fire, you know, back in the day. So this would be something that just occurs, but we don't know how to control it. But what if the entities or this other type of intelligence, non-human intelligence, if you will, knows how to control it. And that's what they're doing. They're basically time traveling in this way. So in this way, it would check interdimensional time travel, you know, 
Because really, if you can control portals and portals can be controlled to go anywhere or to even pop up in an area, but geographically later on in time, you know what I mean? Like they're stationary. The portal like the Stargate is always in the same spot, but you visit it in a different time you know, in the same spot, maybe, of course, and then everything would be different. So you'd need these craft to fly around because you don't want to land in the, in a mountain or something. This is awesome, dude. I, I like the idea of stories from our ancient past being just something like this, something incidental or like we said, possibly speculating wildly, uh, controllable. Uh, so do you think that's possible that that's what it is? It's just these vortices are just like a natural phenomena here and we've yet to understand it. Yeah, I definitely believe it's a natural phenomenon. You know, we use the term supernatural, but you know, the, there's not supernatural is just a term that we've used to describe things that we don't quite understand. It's all natural. You know, there's there's an explanation and reason for all of these different things that happen. Just, you know, it's it's one of those, you know, if we took a cell phone into the past and we showed somebody, they would think it was magic, you know. So um, so that's kind of what's going on here. We don't quite understand it. We don't know how to harness it, but I believe other life forms do. And so they've been able to use that technology to, you know, traverse from here uh, or from there to here, whether that's another dimension, whether it's another point in time, perhaps it's somewhere else in the galaxy or universe, they have learned how to use this technology to move back and forth. You know, and and I bet ancient cultures knew how to do this. That's what they say, like uh, Teotihuacan and things like that are, are these like Stargate portals because there's like these and uh, maybe even uh, in Jordan Petra is some sort of, you know, Stargate or something that's actually a portal there. Um, what do you think about that, that those just rock indents? Do you think those could be portals or vertices? Yeah, you mentioned Teotihuacan. That's a great example. Uh, we see things like this all over Egypt and other parts of the world. Uh, you know, the the idea of some of these, you know, uh, Stonehenge, but other uh, stone circles around the, the world, you know, were they harnessing this energy for use as Stargate technology? You know, we already know that uh, the resonance and vibration that is captured within Sure, they're using it for ritualistic purposes. Sure, they're using it for calendrical purposes, aligning with the stars and all that. But we, you know, it's detectable. You can go out there with magnetometers and detect the energy that's within. So, you know, they were using these things for healing purposes. They were using them for entering altered states of consciousness. And so, you just take it to the next level. Stargates and portals is that next step. Mm. Now, uh, this was obviously knowledge we used to have, but we do not possess any longer or not the masses possess it any longer. Do you think that um, it was probably technology relegated for shaman or high priests of some sort in those societies? I wouldn't think that just a common person could just walk over and just, you know, sh zip over to the other side of the universe, but we don't know. That may have been just like a public transit system and they just may have done it all the time. Do you think that um, the knowledge has gone away from us just because we've lost it and we don't have it anymore? Or do you think that it's been deliberately hidden and suppressed? Well, I mean, you, you make a good point about hey, it would have been, um, you know, knowledge that only a certain select people would have had. So, you, you know, your shamans, your priests, that, those sorts of people that would have uh, had that technology and known how to use it. So, yeah, not your, uh, not your farmer out in the field. I mean, he might know of it, but doesn't know how it works. So, yeah, over time, these things get lost for a variety of different reasons. Um, yeah we have wars and things like that that occur and you know we have a very brutal history where uh, you know genocide was prevalent you know we're invading your territory we're going to stamp out your culture your gods and you know incorporate you into ours so if the invading force 
doesn't know how to use that technology and stamps out those people that do know how to use it, then that knowledge is going to get lost. So you know, we see remnants of it here and there. And, and I think there are, um, you know, of, of course, you know, those who are studying this are aware that this technology used to exist. But I also believe that this is knowledge that you know, our government and other organizations are searching for and have more knowledge of. Now, I've, I've been in uh, you know, Egypt where in the temple of, of Dandara, uh, you know, they've just opened up one of the other crypts and you go down inside. You know, it's not quite as you know, nice and renowned as the, the crypt that has like the, uh, the Dandara light bulb and all that in it. Uh, but, you know, there's still some really nice glyphs and things like that in there. But there's also these sections where blocks have been removed and you're seeing chisel marks on the wall and they're quite recent. Now, this is an area that had been closed for 20 years. So, you know, it's, it's not like these things just, you know, fell on the ground. You know, they were deliberately removed. Where did they go? So you have little conversations off on the side and, you know, you're finding out, well, yeah, those are you know, private collectors took things away. And so you know, that's what's been going on for the last 20 years at places like this is it's closed off. We're going to take a look to see what's there. You know, the more esoteric knowledge that people are looking for, we're going to auction those off to the highest bidder and then we'll open it up to the public and they'll get a little smattering of it. So you know, it, it's sad that this knowledge is kind of in the hand of the elites, but uh, it, we're, we're trying to find as much as we can here. Yeah. And it makes sense, though, that they would go in and kind of pick everything clean, you know, um, kind of like Tesla when he died. They went in and removed all of his trunks yeah. except for two. Yeah. And um, anyway, yeah, we all know that story. But uh, so but it is kind of cool to think of perhaps even if it was just shaman in the immediate past or the time in, in which this knowledge was a little bit more uh, ubiquitous, uh, then I, I think of a time way before that where it was just super common, maybe, you know, and like I said, it would be cool to have just like a planet where you live. Right. Like and then you get a portal and then you you go work on like Zorgon six and you go work a field there in a factory or something like that. And you just portal back home. It, it's kind of a, that would be a cool way to commute. Maybe it was just that common. Maybe it was just like, Oh, I'm just going to zip over here to, you know, Zuda and, uh, you know, get something to eat real quick and I'll be right back. I'm um, just like taking a flight, but easier. I, I, I think the interconnectivity of the universe could have been that super cool and is other places. It's just, we're working on it. You know, we're, we're working on getting back there. So, um, I want to know what you think powers these things. So there, obviously there are these vortices, there are these power centers. Uh, what, what do you think's going on with that? Yeah. So what the ancients knew how to do was use the energy of the earth. You know, they didn't have to, uh, you know, create you know, these massive power plants like we do. They did it in their own ways. But like you mentioned Tesla, like what he was trying to do with his, his tower was he was trying to harness the energy of the earth. And that's what the ancients knew to do, whether it was through uh, the stone circles, the pyramids, you know, all of these, you know, different massive structures like that were harnessing the energy. So this is what was powering, uh, you know, these, these locations to create the portals and stargates and, and all of that. Um, you know, the, uh, you know, granite is, you know, 55% uh, quartz, you know, which is of course an amazing conductor of electricity. So you go to these locations, you walk in, you see all of this granite and it's constructed in such a way to be able to harness that, that energy. Now today we're in, walking into structures that are thousands of years old. So it doesn't quite work you know, like it used to, you can go in there and you feel palpable energy. You can still take readings. And, you know, it's, it's really fascinating that you can go to these locations, get those readings and just think about it for a second. Like what I'm picking up on, you know, it's, it's measurable. It's, it's, you know, a good amount of energy. Think 
thousands of years ago when it was first created, how much energy would have been there? It would have been amazing. Yeah. Especially under different astronomical conditions and all of that kind of stuff, too. Who knows what kind of role that played? And I love Tesla's tower, how it was built, because I've seen cross-sections of the Great Pyramid of Giza and then Tesla's tower. And both are built over these specific aquifers and the way that they generate this um, piezoelectricity, which is another you know way to conduct electricity, which is so cool. This is one of the comparisons um, that they did with that. So uh, I... Um, I think these vortices are incredible. I think portals would be one of the coolest things ever. If I, uh, let me ask you this, if you could have any superpower at all, what would your superpower be? <laughs> um, that's a great question. It's like, would I fly or breathing in space? Because, I, you know, just- You can have two. You can have two. We'll give you two. Okay. Yeah. And really invincibility in space because I, I want to travel to other planets and, you know, see the universe. Um, and so it's very hard for a human to live. <laughs> <laughs> in those conditions, you know, we're trying to figure it out so we can, you know, uh, go to the moon and go to the Mars and, and all of that. Um, so, yeah, I think that would probably be it. Absolutely. But the, the portals dovetail with mine um, and uh, it, which is teleportation, of course, and then also um, psychometry, which I think psychometry would be cool. Do you know okay. what that is? Oh, yeah. Oh, I, I've seen it firsthand. That was one of the things that blew my mind when I was uh, a kid. You know, first little paranormal investigation I went on, um, my friend Dave, and I had no idea it was a paranormal investigation. We just had a friend that said, I think my house is haunted. And it, it, there was this wall in her room that she, um, you know, she swore she couldn't tack anything up on it. It would always fall down. So that the wall was haunted. It was a very old historic house. So we go up into that bedroom. And I did not know David was an extremely sensitive guy. He put his hand flat on the wall like this. We're like 15 years old. He put his hand flat on the wall. All of a sudden, he turns this bright, bright red, starts sweating profusely. It's like, oh, my gosh, what the heck's going on with my friend? He starts going wall to wall in the house to try to find the other hot spots. You know, so it was, that was my first introduction to psychometry. It's blown away. And that was really the moment that I knew that I was going to be involved with this stuff for the rest of my life. Yes. How cool is that? That moment, right? You you just knew it. That was your that yep. was your moment. That's really interesting. Well, then let's talk about some of that. Uh, so I'm super curious about shadow beings. There's a lot of different interpretations on it. What's your take on the shadow entities? Yeah, it really depends on the shadow. Um, you know, people want like a really quick answer. Okay, what is a shadow person? And boom, it be done. And a lot of people think they're you know all you know dark and evil. And yeah, some of them are, um, but. You know, some of them are just human spirits or somebody's Aunt Jane that can't fully manifest as an apparition. It just comes off as a shadow. You know, some are interdimensional beings, some, some are extraterrestrials. I believe some are also like astral projections. You know, somebody knows how to astral project into a room, uh, maybe to check on a loved one who lives very far away. That loved one wakes up and sees that energy in the room and they don't know they can't make any sense of it they just see like a shadow or some people talk like a shimmer man sort of thing um, so i there are a lot of different forms you know you have humanoid figures you have the hat man you have uh, hooded figures mists wisps crawlers all these different forms they they all have their own agendas some are uh some are rather uh, malevolent sure you know they do nasty things to people some are actually benevolent that actually uh, will help people but most I have found are just rather benign. They're neither good nor evil. They're just kind of there watching, observing, learning things about humanity, whether that's as an extraterrestrial, as some sort of uh, you know, interdimensional being from another plane of existence. You know, they're, curious about, they're curious about us and want to learn. And a lot of times they don't realize that we can actually see them to some degree. You know, what you said about the astral projection was really interesting and how people perceive. So 
this this uh, rang a lot of bells, Mike. Um, so let's say that somebody astral projects, okay, into a room to visit a loved one, and there's someone else sitting there, and they see a shadow being, okay. Now this may be like uh, a product of the reticulative activating system. Um, I believe that's how you pronounce it, but it's basically that part of your brain that if it doesn't know something, it'll just fill in the gap with something else. So perhaps you are seeing ghosts and aberrations or spies that can kind of cloak your mind or something and tap into that to where the same this in the same way that shadow memories can be created um, with entities like uh, extraterrestrials and such where they say you know I saw an owl or something like that but it turned out it was a gray so maybe these shadow people are just another way of your mind trying to fill in the gap of something it does not understand now I'm not ruling out that it's other entities or anything like that but let's say that you are astral projecting you would appear that form would appear even if you could see the astral form as like an entity or something ghostly, you know, uh, something poltergeist-like. So this is interesting, man. Do you think that that could have anything to do with it? Well, I mean, it's possible. So everything's, you know, frequency, resonance, vibration. And so when that consciousness enters your room, you know, you're feeling that energy, you're feeling a presence there. Uh, you know, we have around us a toroidal field of energy that it extends out several feet. Um, Hart Mathis, too, has done a lot of great research on this. And so when some other energy enters into that, you feel that. Um, you know, and here's a great example. Um, I mention it when I get into sleep paralysis and things like that. But um, like my son, Cameron, in the middle of the night would wake up, stands next to the bed. Most kids, you know, will tap you on the shoulder, shake you awake. Hey, I had a bad dream. I you know, need to use the bathroom, need glass water, whatever it is. And you go take care of it. My youngest son, Cameron, would stand there and just stare at me and I would wake up, you know, I'd be, oh my God, Cameron, what are you doing there? And we would go take care of whatever he needed. But the question then becomes, okay, what is it that woke me up? Because he didn't touch me. Well, it was his energy. I felt his presence next to me. So I think that's what's happening in a lot of these cases that we're feeling a presence in the room. We're feeling that energy there. And so we wake up and we observe something, you know, whether that's you know, a shadow entity, an ET, um, some sort of shimmer or an apparition in the corner. And, you know, it could be like you said, you know, maybe we get a feel for what that resonance or vibration is and we relate it to something and it comes off as that form that we are relating to. That is certainly a possibility. Yeah, it's like it, I'm just reminded of it because the story of the invisible ships um, where the ancient peoples were standing there seeing the Spanish come over and they didn't know what ships were, and which I think is ridiculous because they had boats and stuff. And it, the, the whole idea is silly, but the, the story goes that they could they could see the water disturbed, but they couldn't see what was there. And so a shaman stood on the beach for I don't know how many how many days and finally he could see it. And so he told people what to see and then they could all see the ships, which is uh, what do you what's your read on that story? Have you ever heard of that? I haven't heard that story. Um, yeah, that one's that one's a little bit different. And, you know, I, I have uh, I know right? I have to take that with a little bit of a grain of salt because, yeah. you know, you're in, you're introducing the idea that he's you know being very suggestive. And so once people start kind of filling in the blanks for another, then, yeah, they start to see that based on the suggestiveness. So I don't he know. Could have, don't he know could have said story. it was anything. Yeah. And I agree with this. And just like how ancient peoples described something flying that could have been a bomber from 1942 flying back, you know, in 500 BC. And they would have described it as a bird because that was their technological reference for something like that. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So interesting, man. Um, so what is your, have you had direct contact besides the one at eight? I mean, I'm sure you're, you're riddled with these experiences, but what's one that's incredibly impactful for you or just one you'll never forget 
bit of an experience you had with one of these shadow beings. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, a few years back, um, witnessing, well, let me, let me back up here a little bit. So, um, when it comes to this area of research or really any of this research, I, I always, uh, put the caveat out there, I reserve the right to change my mind because as we continue to learn more and more, you know, that's going to change your perspective on a lot of these different areas. And so it drives me nuts when somebody just, you know, sticks to one idea and they are just hardcore on, on to the day I die, this is the way it's going to be. And maybe they're right, but in a lot of cases, you know, you discover more information along the way and you're like, Hey guy, you know, <laughs> there's you know, a thousand things over here that actually prove you're wrong. Just like the whole thing with the Sphinx, you know, how long did it take for people to finally come around on the aging of the Sphinx? And there's still people out there that are hardcore against that. Um, so yeah, I, I feel for Robert shock. He's, he's really had his work cut out for him. Um, but in any case, you know, I had been in the camp long ago that, you know, human spirits are human spirits shadow entities are their own thing. Uh, they, they can't be the same. And over the years, talking with a lot of different people at, at you know, conferences, or they just, you know, email me or whatever, um, more people were coming forward with like, no, this was actually, you know, my, you know, my mother, my grandmother, um, you know, it was a, it was a human, uh, that sort of thing that, that showed up as a shadow. And so I started to give a little bit more credit. And one of my very good friends, Rob Guttrell, uh, who I just, trust my, with my life. Uh, you know, he sat me down one time. He told me the story of his aunt that had appeared to him as a shadow that wanted him to deliver a message to his mother. And it's like, well, I really trust Rob. Okay, fine, fine. I'll, I'll definitely give this some credence. Some, you know, uh, shadow entities are human spirits that can't fully manifest as an apparition, but sometimes seeing is believing. And a few years back, we were, um, we held a conference at Mineral Springs Hotel in Alt, Illinois. It's an old historic hotel. It still has the Mineral Spring down in the sub-basement, which is fantastic. And doing a paranormal investigation in the uh, top floor of the hotel, which is an abandoned section of the hotel, very end of the night. And this is one of those nights where uh, we had a fantastic electric storm that evening over the Mississippi River. Uh, it was just absolutely beautiful. So things are really charged up. Well, we're in the corner suite of that, uh, of that hotel upstairs, which is known as Pearl's room. It's a confirmed suicide, very uh, sad tale. We're just doing some EVP work, electronic voice phenomena, trying to interact with uh, the spirit of Pearl. And from down the hall, uh, we start hearing some, some noises. So go out there, check it out. Uh, you know, there's actually two halls there. Look down the one, nothing. Look down the other. And there is this black smoke that's billowing up from the end of the hall and it's coming closer and closer. It's like, is there fire down there? You know, you don't smell anything, but you know, you see this black smoke that's coming forth and it starts doing something very unusual. It starts creeping up the wall on the right-hand side of the hall. You creep back down, you creep back up, creep back down. This whole thing as it's coming closer and closer. Finally, as it's about halfway down the hall, it starts morphing into this apparition of a little girl. And she's coming closer and closer, and uh, she ends up stopping by this one particular door. And what's fascinating about this door is that within that room, there were legends and stories in the hotel about a little girl that would frequent that room, always staring out the window as if somebody had, had left her alone and she was lost. And here we were actually seeing her. Five of us that saw this little girl that had morphed out of this black smoke. So it's like, that was a moment for me that confirmed, okay, yeah, some of these shadow entities 
are actually human spirits because here's this little girl spirit that people have been talking about for years. Do you think that it could be some sort of time loop to where like basically you see through a veil in time, sort of like the um, interesting occurrences that happen at these triangle areas as well, where like, again, the veil's very thin. Um, do you think that that's possible that they could just be time loop expressions that you're getting a glimpse in for some reason, maybe because it was so electrically charged? Yeah, there's, I mean, there's a lot of different things uh, that these could be. That one I think was more of, of intelligence spirit because it, it seemed a little bit more interactive with us, a little bit more responsive. She didn't want to come too much closer past that door. She kind of stayed there. Um, so that one seemed a little bit more intelligent in nature. Um, we have what we call a residual haunt where it is just like a playback of, a, of an event. We don't usually know what the catalyst is. You know, it might be something to do with the electric charge in the evening uh, that night. I think that's why we saw her was because there was more uh, of that electric charge in the air that, you know, the air had been ionized by, uh, you know, by the electrical storm. Uh, and sometimes, well, I mean, we have the idea of stone tape theory that the energy gets trapped within the building and something, some sort of catalyst kicks it off. And we watch it play back like, you know, a, a videotape or, or what have you. And we watch it play out. You can interact with it. It's just like watching a movie, but it's, it, it seems like an apparition. But then, yes, you do have ones that are time slips, which are really fascinating because this is interactive on both sides and they're both in in their moment. Um, I haven't, uh, you never know. I, I may have been a part of those with all the different things that I've seen, but um, I can't be sure of it. But the, the one that's most fascinating to me is um, at the house known as the Conjuring House that the movie, the, the Conjuring was based off of in Harrisville, Rhode Island. And uh, my good friend, Andrea Perrin, uh, who's the oldest daughter of that, uh, of the family that lived there during those 10 years in the seventies. She has told many times, and I actually included the story as part of my shadow dimension docu-series where she and her mother had actually observed from their parlor where they were at into the dining room of this colonial family that just suddenly appeared in the room and you had the, the mother over by the, you know, she was cooking something over the fire, a couple of kids running around, you know, these two gentlemen sitting at a table and they had these, you know, pewter tankards they are kind of, you know, drinking. And they turned toward Andrea and her mother, Carolyn, and they noticed them. And the one gentleman says to the other, well, will you look at that as if Andrea and Carolyn were the ghosts? Yes. So yeah, that is absolutely fascinating. It's like something out of the others really. And so, but that would be a time slip where you had two moments in time that could see each other. So it, it's great because Andrea and Carolyn are seeing a glimpse of the past with those guys in the past are seeing a glimpse of the future. It's amazing. I, I love this. There's, there's another one I'll get through. I'll get through it pretty quick. Have you heard the one about the frat guy that went and stayed the night in the, in the haunted house? Cause nobody wanted to. I'm not familiar with that one, no. Okay, so frat guy goes, uh, haunted house, uh, gets dared to do this. It's a completely vacant haunted house, right? Uh, electrical storm that night, which is important to note as well. Uh, he's sleeping on a couch. All of a sudden, he says he sees a ghost or an apparition walk through a wall, come down the stairs, look at him, freak out, and then run back upstairs through the wall, okay? Now, what's interesting about this, he freaked out, of course, and, and left. He goes to, like, the library to find out more information on the house. The librarian happens to be the granddaughter of the guy that used to live in that house. She goes, oh, my God, come back tomorrow. i got something to show you. She brings her grandfather's diary back. He details a story of when he walked down the stairs during an electrical storm one night and sees a guy laying on the couch, freaked out, 
and ran back up the stairs. Now that's fascinating. (laughs) Yes. And the through the wall part of it was that wall wasn't there. That was walled off later. That was a bedroom entrance later on or earlier on. So again, these are exactly what you talked about, man. They interact with each other. I think this is fantastic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Another fascinating story that uh, was related to me here um, some months back now, but I slipped it in there. I updated my uh, Walk in the Shadows book and included this story. Uh, you know, you know, people talk about you know doppelgangers and you know evil twin that sort of thing. And I think these are more of time slips, and we're just witnessing ourselves. They're not necessarily twins. You know, you have a fascinating story about uh, you know the, the famous poet Goethe, where he's walking down uh, you know the road toward a particular town. He sees a strange, or he sees a man in a strange gray suit walking on the other side, disappears, and years later, he's walking down the other side of the road. And he realizes, wait a second, I was the guy in the gray suit. Yes. But in relation to shadow entities, um, this story that was related to me some months back, it was a um, you know, young man, kind of a young adult. Um, and he was, um, when he was uh, a child, he had walked into the kitchen and saw this you know tall, dark hooded figure standing over by the kitchen table, freaked him out. He goes running off. Years later, he's at the kitchen table, making a sandwich. He's got a hoodie on, turns toward the doorway. He sees this shorter, shadowy, you know, size of a child figure in the doorway who then takes off. He realizes, wait a second, it was myself. You know, I, I would just saw myself as a child. When I was a child, that was myself right now with the hoodie making a sandwich. God. So, it, yeah. God, it's crazy. It blows my mind, man. It blows my mind. So, I mean, these shadow beings, they we, they can't be a modern thing. So what do ancient cultures know about shadow beings? Have they been talking about them too? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this phenomenon goes you know all the way back into antiquity. Uh, you know, you go back to like ancient Sumer, they had uh, stories of all kinds of different, you know, what they call, we call them demons today, what they call them Udug uh, was their term for it. And they're good and bad ones. You, it's hard for us to think of a good demon, but they had good demons. And there was one in particular called Alu, uh, who, you know, he didn't have a face. He didn't, um, you know, no eyes, no nose, no mouth, that sort of thing. Like we attribute to shadow entities today. He also had no limbs. Uh, and he would hover over people at night. He was a, a binding uh, spirit. So this this goes into the whole idea of sleep paralysis, that he would hover over you, paralyze you, that sort of thing. And so then, uh, you know, when you started experiencing Alu, then the shamans would come in and they would invoke the good demons to do battle with, with Alu. So they had the, the concept of it there back in ancient Sumer. Fast forward a little bit to, to ancient Egypt. And you know, they believed in seven different parts of the soul. One of those parts of the soul was the kabit or the shadow. And at death, while the other parts of the soul would go on to the constellation of Orion, the kabit would stay here on earth to roam around. And you see this with a, a lot of different types of, of cultures where uh, you, in their descriptions, they're all describing the same basic thing. You might have a different name for it. There might be some legends and lore behind it, but they're all talking about these uh, shadow entities. Some of them, you know, pressing on the chest or, you know, being there at death or part of the soul that roams around on earth after death. It, it's, it's really the same thing, just a little bit of a different context because of the culture. And it's been going on for thousands of years. That's fascinating. And you're absolutely right. These stories are amazing. I'm so grateful you're here to do this with us. So uh, just a couple more for you, Hammond, and then we'll turn you loose. I want to know about how, so if the phenomena is connected and we are part of this universe, what makes us connected to the rest of the universe? 
uh, we're all connected. <laughs> you know, it's you know, there's actually we're acquiring this fascinating imagery these days of the universe, whether uh, you know, different telescopes, the Chandra Wim telescope. I mean, you can actually see with the uh, background radiation of the universe, you know, these like webs that are stretched out from one galaxy to another. So all the energy between these different galaxies is connected. Um, you know, really you think about you know, what are we made of? What's our planet made of? It, it, it's all stardust. You know, we're all interconnected to it, but, you know, even our, our energy, our, our resonance, our vibration, uh, that we don't really think of because it's just always a part of us. It is very interactive with the whole rest of the universe around us. So, um, you know, like, you know, ripples in a, in a pond, uh, you know, that extends out from that, that, uh, pebble you throw into it. The same thing with us, we're the pebble and our energy are those ripples that are expanding outward into the rest of the universe. That is so cool. Absolutely right, man. I love it. We're, we're big fans of the unity consciousness idea and that it's all consciousness and you're kind of just yes, part of this absolutely. matrix or this intelligent organic simulation or something like that. Uh, do you yeah, think, you know, it's funny. You, you see, it, <laughs> I love that uh, because this is stuff that, you know, people have been talking about for you know thousands of years, but for some reason, science has pushed off on the side until recently where now they're coming out with studies that are saying, oh yeah, we believe the earth may actually have a consciousness. It's like, oh, you think? <laughs> We've been talking about this forever. You're just now saying this. Okay, guys. Well, there. I think it's a few things. I think uh, for sure there's, uh, you know, two different things like pyramid cultures and then circle cultures like uh, and they're geographically located. So pyramid cultures, just for those in the audience that might know, uh, not know, uh, are more um, extreme climate, less abundant. So you think of like uh, Western societies and things. Those are pyramid cultures. You have to work very, very hard to survive uh, harsh temperatures. Now, uh, ring cultures or circle cultures are more in abundant resource area, re resource rich areas like the equator, things like that to where you've got an abundance so they're connected to everything and so the two ideologies are kind of what are juxtaposed there and so it, it seems like um i'm a big fan though i there's some energy shifting you know they call this like the great awakening uh and so it feels like though that the idea science and spirituality are finally kind of merging and i one of the nods and what what i think is that turning point uh, is of course quantum physics but then also um this right here and it's this merging of the idea of a simulation which would in tale that there's a creator um, and then it would then lead one to believe that this would be an intelligent design of some sort doesn't have to be you know the religious avenue it doesn't have to be any of that it could still because at some level just like arthur c clark's quote um but to apply it to this, a, an architect of this type of a simulation or a god or a deity would be indistinguishable from one another. You, you really, they would, they would look the exact same to you from our perspective. So a uh, big fan of this idea. Uh, and I like, I like that science is kind of blending more to this. I think we kind of ping pong, you know, we do these extremes and then kind of come back. Uh, and I think the time in which we had portals not too long ago was one of those times that we're coming back to now. Uh, it's just kind of the way that I look at it. So um, I wanted to know what your uh, favorite site is to investigate or that you have investigated so far. Oh, um, you know, it's it, it's a tough question because there's so many wonderful locations. Um, you know, my favorite, what I would say, haunted house is Stone Line in Guthrie, Oklahoma. It's just the epitome of of a haunted house. You know, you, you just look at it. And you're like, yeah, that place is on. But you, when you walk into it, you just you feel the ambiance. You feel the energy of the place. You know, you have the old creaks and groans. It's immaculately decorated inside. So you get that that uh, turn of the 20th century feel. Um, and it's like, you know, you're always hearing voices upon the air, footsteps, that sort of things. Just wonderful vibe in that house. Uh, I mentioned the Mineral Springs Hotel in Alton, Illinois earlier. So as far as like a, you know, 
a building like that, a historic building, uh, old hotel, wonderful location is right there in the Mississippi River. And you know, each each level of the building has its own energy and vibe. So what you feel you know, down the old mineral spring area is different than the abandoned pool is different than like the grand ballroom is different than the, uh, the upstairs. So a uh, wonderful location. And, um, you know, really I, 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 I loved exploring Egypt. You know, it, it wasn't doing anything like a full investigation there. Uh, but you know, we, well, I guess we did in the, in the great pyramid, because we had that for two hours all to ourselves. Uh, we're going back again next February. So uh, yeah, exploring Egypt was just, uh, that was just such an honor. God, that's so cool. I, I hope that somebody in the future or in the past that was building that damn thing sees your ghost from now and it time slips in yeah. and you guys kind of give each other a little <laughs> wink and they're like, oh man. I would they, love that. Passion. Yeah. I, that that's amazing. So um, the, um, I am also though curious about if you could visit any site that you haven't yet, what is one that you would? Um, yeah, another great question. So I did mention going back to Egypt, but there's so many locations. Um, you know, I've always wanted, you know, we're, we're doing, uh, Ireland this, uh, uh, this summer. So Drumbeg Stone Circle is a place I wanted to get to Newgrange, uh, you know, those historic places like that. But if I always wanted to go to you know, Rome, see the Colosseum, uh, the ancient ruins there and, uh, you know, really any of these, you know, like Machu Picchu, uh, you know, some of the old, you know, South American uh, ruins, just, you know, amazing locations like that. So cool, man. Uh, we'll keep kicking ass, dude. We are going to keep up with you. Mike Rick Secker, we will locate uh, all the ways to find you down in the show notes. Of course, you have an awesome, awesome uh, bunch of material over there on YouTube with your Haunted Road, especially, and of course, all your books. You've written some amazing books, and you just do some awesome work, man. So you're invited back anytime, of course, my friend, and I'm truly grateful for your time. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Brandon. Uh, great show, and I love your questions. Mike Ricksecker, cannot thank you enough for your time. Uh, guys, go down in the show notes and explore his work further. Make sure you absolutely check out his YouTube, uh, his uh, docu-series Shadow Dimension, as well as uh, you know A Walk in the Shadows among all of his amazing books. Guys, check this thing out for sure. Located down in the show notes. So thank you again, Mike, for your time, brother. That was awesome, man. Uh, okay, so down in the show notes as well, there's going to be some resource links for you guys. So Food Forced Abundance, get your freedom from fear on. If you were wanting to start your own podcast, host through who I host through, which is Libsyn. And that link will give you two months free. Highly encourage anyone who wants to start their own show, please do it. Just get out there, do your thing. Uh, also down there is the Amazon affiliate link that we use. So if you were going to buy anything on Amazon, feed that beast through our link. It helps the show. Down there as well is going to be Opus, the organization for paranormal understanding and support that can help you with a variety of incredible things. And it's just a very cool community. Super grateful. Uh, also down in the show notes, guys, is going to be expandingrealitypodcast.com. That is going to be a central hub for all things expanding reality. Uh, over there on the website, we have a ton of stuff that we don't have anywhere else. And 99.9% .9 of that thing is free. Now, if you'd like to support the show, you can become an expansive insider and do it that way. Absolutely cool. Totally up to you guys. Thank y'all so much for your support. So go out into this incredible, incredible place, guys, whatever this thing is, and y'all pick up a piece of litter, buy somebody in line around you a coffee or a meal, pick up somebody's grocery tab, something like that, guys. Something small goes a massive way throughout the ripple effect of the collective here. And also, while you're doing all that awesome stuff, 
go ahead and get out of the left-hand lane because that's a huge pain in the butt if you got somebody behind you wanting to pass there. And uh, above all and anything else, guys, keep your mind geared to mysteries. Always be ready for this universe to surprise you. It's just a beautiful way to saunder through this existence, and I highly recommend it. And you do that through conversations like this, through Mike's work, through having your own conversations and exploring these ideas yourself. And we're grateful that you're all on this journey with us together. So above all and anything else, guys, go out into this beautiful place, whatever it is, and y'all just be good to one another. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.